Today's reading is taken from uh, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, and from chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. In the Church Bible, that's on page 950. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to. And chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his, on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Route 66. If you're just uh, joining us in that, The Way to Jesus showing how the whole Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, point to Jesus Christ. And of course, of that series, we're looking at the different types of literature that are used in the Bible. So far, we've um, studied narrative or storytelling. We've looked at the law, um, wisdom, looked at the Psalms. And this morning, we're looking at the prophetic literature. Who were the prophets? How do they point to Jesus? Well, the area of prophecy is a huge one and uh, I'm not really going to be able to do justice to it in the next um, 50, 55 minutes or so. Um, But um, in short, the prophets were God's messengers. There were some prophets in the Bible whose messages weren't recorded. I'm sure you can think of some of those. Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. Um, And then there were the written prophets who recorded the messages that God gave them to say to his people. We find these in the last um, 17 books of the Old Testament. If you want to turn to the the index of your Bible and just look down then, um, you'll see the five so-called 
major prophets, from Isaiah to, to Daniel. Um, not major because they're any more important, but because the, the books are, are, are longer. Um, and the, the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets running from Hosea through to Malachi. Again, not minor because of their importance. And we're we'll looking at one of those, Zechariah, this morning. But when people think about prophecy, they often think it's all about the future. You know, it's, after all, something we're quite obsessed with. We all want to know what's going to happen to us, um, how things will affect us in the years to come. Uh, what will be the, as far as our church is concerned, what will be the outcome of the vote of Cornerstone next week? What will be the outcome of the, the planning application for the, the building project? When will we find a new youth work leader? Or in our own lives, where will we be in five years' time? If you're somebody who is single, will you be married? If you're somebody without a job, will I have a job in a few years' time? We want to know what the Lord has got planned for us. That is a common feeling about prophecies. It might help just to clarify a couple of things about the Old Testament prophets and why they're still relevant for us today before we do look at that passage from Zechariah. And first of all, they're not simply predictions of the future, but they're often calls to repent. If you look back at that opening passage in chapter 1 of Zechariah that Derek read for us, um, Zechariah was told, um, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me. Return to me is a call to repent. The prophecies of future judgment are intended to cause the people to see their sin and to turn from it, to turn back to God. And likewise, the blessings are often conditional on the people turning away from their rebelliousness back to God. And that's just as relevant for them then as it is for us today. And as we read the, the warnings in Malachi, which we studied last term, we saw issues there that were relevant to people then about half-hearted worship, about uh, infidelity, um, about injustice that we need to take on board today. So there are often calls to repent. But secondly, prophecies will often contain multiple elements of fulfilment. There's the immediate, the historical context, there's the, the, the future, and there's the far future. Um, one helpful way of looking at this maybe is to think of a, a mountain range. I've got a picture here from a holiday a couple of years ago we went, uh, when we went to Scotland. And um, I've got it on my screen here, unfortunately, this morning, but uh, there are the, the boys ready to set off. And as you can see in the background, there are different peaks that uh, we are heading towards. And you're not quite sure what is the, the highest peak and actually till you've got there. Um, so you go on to the next slide, another one where we thought we got to the peak. Here are the... The boys, um, do you like these responsible parents that dress them up in shorts to climb mountains? Um, looking a bit cold. We thought we got to the peak, but as you see in the background, there's yet another peak. And that is often the case with prophecy. Things are fulfilled, promises are fulfilled, but then there's a further fulfilment in the, in the far future. The advantage of where we sit in history is that we can look back and see some of those prophecies fulfilled already. We saw them fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so as we look forward to those that are yet to be fulfilled, we can take great comfort from the fact that many have already been fulfilled. We are in a very privileged position in history. And that gives us great confidence in God's power and his faithfulness to see that those prophecies um, did come to pass. Now, at the human level, we know um, those people who are reliable 
and those people who are trustworthy. I always think it'd be interesting if, you, I don't know, if any of you are on eBay and you've sold things and you get given some feedback from your, your buyer and you get a bit of a record of reliability that builds up. But I wonder what it would be like if uh, uh, every time we said we were going to do something, if somebody gave a bit of feedback, did they actually do what they were going to say? What sort of reliability record would we have? By the way, pastors are probably not the most reliable, and if you've told me something I've said I was going to do it, then I do apologise now. Um, there's too much going on up there to remember everything. But um, let's, turn, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 6 and uh, have a look at this piece of prophetic literature and how it points to Jesus. Just to give you a little bit of background, um, book was, the first part of the book was written 520 BC, about 70 years after the return from exile of uh, the people of Israel from Babylon. And uh, the first part of Zechariah um, contains eight visions that Zechariah received to do with the immediate future of Jerusalem and, uh, and its temple, which was in urgent need of rebuilding. It's quite an encouraging message. It's a city that uh, attracts many nations because of God's presence, um, but also a warning about um, becoming a city of truth and righteousness. If it was to enjoy God's, God's blessings. Um, second part of the book was written later and is often quoted in the New Testament in relation to the coming of Jesus and again contains warnings. But the passage we're looking at this morning comes after the eight visions and it serves almost as a climax to them. And let's just have a look at it because here Zechariah has been given clear instructions to do something. Have a look at verse 9 there. He's to take silver and gold from the exiles, Geldai, Tobijah, and Jajiah, who've arrived from Babylon, um, presumably bringing this as a free will offering, and they're to go to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Maybe because Josiah is a, is a goldsmith, maybe the, the men were staying at his house, we don't really know. But the gold and the silver were meant to be used to make a crown. Well, having been told to make a crown, here comes the big surprise, because it then says in verse 11, having taken the silver and gold and made a crown, set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Now, that might not mean something to you, but that would have come as a huge surprise to Zechariah. Because throughout Israel's history, the role of priest, who came from the tribe of Levi, and the role of king from the tribe of Judah were very separate roles. They were not meant to be performed by the same person. It might be interesting just to um, have a look at uh, what happened when uh, somebody did try to perform the role of both. Have a look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16. I find that on page 460 of the Church Bibles. And this is the story of King Uzziah. We read from... 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But after his eye became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honoured by the Lord God. 
As I heard a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And when Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he was, himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. And it says, remained with him until he died. Now, obviously, Zechariah would have known that story. And so being given this instruction would have come across as pretty shocking. And so that is an indication that what he's meant to be doing here was nothing that was um, actually historical. This was a symbolic action that he was performing. And that's quite frequent. Amongst the prophets, you will see some pretty crazy symbolic actions which appear crazy, but they're pointing towards something else. Um, Isaiah, for example. Did you know Isaiah was a streaker? Um, When he prophesied against Egypt, he stripped naked to show what would happen to the Egyptians when they would be taken captive by Assyria. Or Jeremiah, did you know Jeremiah was a vandal? He smashed a clay pot to show the people of Jerusalem what would happen to that city. So the question here is, what does this symbolise, this crowning of um, a priest and king? Well, the first point I want to make is that this crowning of Joshua points to the crowning of Jesus as priest and king. Why do we think it points to Jesus? Why do we think that in him the two roles could be united? Well, first of all, the name is a bit of a giveaway. Joshua and Jesus are the same name in the Greek. But look how else he's described. Zechariah is um, told to say here, here is the man, verse 12. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man, behold the man, whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. If you turn back to chapter 3, verse 8, look what you see there. Listen, it says there, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See, the stone I set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. He's pointing to the Messiah. I wonder what that word branch makes you think of. For me, I have a vivid image of when Jono came to chop some trees down for me, some old elder trees we have in the back garden, and I'm pretty dead. Um, it's only when you chop them down and the branches are covering your whole garden that um, you see just how much a branch spreads. Um, you realise just how big they are. It's a pretty big bonfire. But where one of those stumps is now, some branches have begun to grow up. And that reminds me, uh, I'm sure it reminds some of you, of a passage in Isaiah which says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is the the Messiah, Jesus, that we're talking about here. And they're stressing where he comes from as well. The fact that the branch comes from a stump of Jesse. He's a descendant of, of David. He'll branch out from this place and he will build the temple of the Lord, which we'll come on to. What if it's Jesus that's being referred to here? What is the significance of Jesus being priest and king? Why why is that so 
so important. We'll have a look back at Zechariah if you, you turn back to that. And we're told there in verse 13 that he will be clothed with majesty. He will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. Now, when you talk of priests and kings these days, to anybody outside the church, they probably have a fairly um, quaint idea of them. Um, for many people, a priest is... Uh, an unmarried man who um, wears some sort of robe or, or curtains around him and sits in a confession box. A member of the royal family is somebody who also likes to dress up and um, ride in gold carriages. We like to have Kate and, and uh, William as our figureheads, but it's very much a, a traditional thing, not seen, seen as a powerful position. Well, to be closed here with majesty... There's no figurehead positions. This is no sort of dressing up as a king. This is somebody who by their very nature demonstrates a position of power and authority. Remember when Jesus came to earth, he came in a very humble way. And yet he still had authority. It was innate in him. People looked at him and saw somebody with authority. I was reading an article last week about um, Richard Branson and how people underestimated him. Uh, his competition because of his appearance. He went around in jumpers while uh, all the other CEOs wore um, suits and ties. Now, I'm not comparing Richard Branson to, to Jesus, but um, despite Jesus' humble appearance, he was clothed with majesty. You know, his whole speech, his wisdom, his, his presence was that of a king. Remember that song we sang earlier on, The Splendour of the King, clothed with majesty. Have you ever thought what that really means? But if this is Jesus the prophet's talking about, why is he talking about in the future tense? He will sit on the throne. He will be king. But surely if, if Jesus was there before, from before time, he's always been in that position of, of power and authority. Well, this is a, a new kingship in many ways that has been combined with priesthood. And it appears here that he can only have this kingship conferred on him when he's completed his priestly mission. We're told that Jesus gave up his heavenly crown. He came down to earth. He humbled himself for a while, became a man, before he was crowned again. He had to be a priest. So what's that all about then? Well, a priest is basically somebody who intercedes between the people and God. In the Old Testament, the priest performed the, the sacrifices that made the people right with God, that enabled them to come into his presence. And it's only after Jesus completes this work, though, of, of reconciling man to God that he's able to take up his kingly crown again. It says in Hebrews, after he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. On Hebrews 2, we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. It is finished, Jesus says. The Old Testament priests, their work never finished. They had to provide sacrifices year after year. But for Jesus, it was a once for all sacrifice. So the reason for Jesus is no tension between these roles of priest and king. It says here there is, um, there'll be harmony between the two in verse 13. It's that through these two roles that he has brought peace. He's reconciled heaven and earth and brought peace between man and God. And that is important for you because he 
can deal with your sins. He can bring you into a right relationship with God. He's the only one who can do that. If you accept his sacrifice for you. This evening, Scarlett will be professing that um, she has done that, that she's accepted him as her saviour. Have you done that yet? But you can't accept Jesus as saviour without accepting him as your king. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And to accept him as your king, it's to acknowledge his authority. It's to say, actually, you have the authority, not me. Not me trying to lead my life my way. And whilst many people in this country may have an attitude of ambivalence to, towards the Queen, you can't have an attitude of ambivalence towards Jesus Christ. Well, let's come on to the, the second part of this prophecy here, the building of the temple, because verse 12 here says, The man whose name is the branch will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Again, why is this symbolic? Why is this not to do with the physical building of the temple? Well, firstly, because the, the, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem was already underway. Have a look across at chapter 4, verse 9 there, and you'll see that uh, actually Zerubbabel um, had been given that job. That's going on. And also because other prophets used the temple in this way. And Isaiah says, for example, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. But above all, because we are sitting again from that privileged vantage point that we know what Jesus taught about the temple. We know what the New Testament writers taught about the temple. And what we see in the New Testament is that what the, new, the temple symbolises is the presence of God with his people. In a sense, that is what it always symbolised. You know, God couldn't only have been physically present in the, the Testament, the Old Testament times. After all, he's spirit. He's, he's everywhere. But instead of his symbolic presence being tied up with a building, it was tied up with a person, Jesus Christ and his spirit. And the New Testament tells, that, tells us that we are present with Jesus in three ways. First of all, in his body. After Jesus talks about the, uh, the temple being destroyed and after three days being raised again, he says, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. It's his body. It's secondly through the Spirit. After Jesus ascends to heaven, as we've said this morning already, his presence is maintained with his people through the Spirit. And we, we read uh, those words on the notice sheet at the beginning of the service. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And Paul writes to the Corinthians later on, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Well, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? You know, to think that we are God's temple, that his spirit lives in us. I wonder if, when we really think about that carefully, does that affect how we live, how we behave, what we do with our bodies? They're not here for abusing. Some people think, well, body and soul are very separate. You can do what you want with your body, because at the end of the day, it's the soul that matters. But no, we are body and soul together. The spirit is in us. And there are many ways in which we can abuse our bodies, aren't there? You know, it's not just through um, the usual sort of the, uh, things we're wary of, drugs and alcohol, 
um, illicit sex. It could just be through not doing enough exercise, not eating properly, whether it's too little or too much or just the wrong kind of stuff. Maybe it's overwork, both physically and mentally, that can affect us. But the fact that we are the temple is the reason why Zechariah says here, those who are far away will come and help build the temple of the Lord. How is this temple built? The temple that we are part of? Well, it's built by people becoming Christians and having the Spirit dwell within them. That's how the temple is built. People who are far away. This is not just a reference to people who lived a long way away. It's those who were once far away spiritually from God. Paul writes in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We're present with Jesus through the Spirit. And finally, we will be present with him. And here comes the third level of prophecy in the new heaven and earth. In the new heaven and earth, we will be in the physical presence of Jesus, we will see God face to face. And so there's no longer any need for a symbol there. In Revelation it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, let's bring all this together as we, we, we wrap up. There are some amazing promises that we've been looking at here this morning. Um, that in one person the role of king and priest could be combined. That this person, Jesus Christ, would build the temple and that many who are far away would come and help build that temple. And the most amazing thing is that we have seen this promise fulfilled. And many of us may have experienced it. We've accepted Jesus as our king. We've had the spirit come and dwell within us. We ourselves are part of that temple. We know what a privilege, what a joy that is. And to read this and know that it is true already may, should give us an amazing trust. It should give us a great confidence in the God who made this promise. And I hope that um, those of you this morning who may still be far away would allow God to draw you near to become part of that temple. But as with many prophecies, this um, does also end with a warning. And in those last words of uh, chapter, of verse 15, it does say this will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. And we come back to where we started. The prophecies are also about repentance. They are a warning. And let's not think that any of us is immune to, to sin. That we're not immune to, to grieving the Spirit. Let's allow him to to work in us. Uh, let's allow him to, to be pointed to Jesus, uh, to produce the fruit in our lives.